All right, it's a joy to be with you this Lord's Day. And it's my joyful task to deliver God's Word this evening. Uh, the text I'll be preaching from is Matthew 5 8. Um, so let's uh, turn there. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5 8, it's a short verse, but we'll read it together. Um, I have a bookmark in my Bible, so I'm already there. So I will read that. Please follow along as I read. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's take a moment to pray now. Um, Lord God, I, I pray that you attend the preaching of your word tonight and bring glory to your name. Lord, we ask that you send your spirit to teach us and remind us all that you've said to us in your word, all that you've taught us through your ministry. And I pray, God, that you, uh, that you would cause us to see Christ as our only hope in life and death. And uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. So this year, our church has been going through the Beatitudes for our evening services. And this is the sixth Beatitude that Jesus gives in his Sermon on the Mount. And so as I was reflecting on this text, as I was preparing for the sermon, the thing that stuck out to me about the passage was the notion of sight. So I have broken down my sermon into three points about seeing. So the first point, if you write down notes, the first point will be, one, how do we see God? Two, how does God see us? And three, how will we see God? So one, how do we see God? Two, how does God see us? And three, how will we see God? So let's begin with the first point. How do we see God? I'm going to take this from the vantage point of our fallen state and sin. So the answer in an earthly sense is that we cannot see God. Um, God is a spirit, is infinite, eternal, and with our human eyes, we cannot physically see him. But just because you cannot see, you cannot see God, does not mean that he's not there. In fact, God is knowable, and the, know and the knowledge of his presence is perceivable everywhere around us. In our natural state, we don't believe in God. And this is what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have, made, in the things that have been made so they are without excuse." So, although all of creation is the Lord's handiwork that testifies to His greatness and His power and His majesty, even though that's all in front of us, people, we, in our fallen state, we still reject God. And now some people even claim they're wiser for it. Uh, perhaps you've heard people say that they believe in science or um, that you know, believing in God is silly or ridiculous. Well, the Apostle tells us that the people who think this way are actually fools. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1, 22. The psalmist tells us likewise. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The psalmist, that's from Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. The psalmist is telling us that this is the natural condition of every person. Regardless of where you are, socioeconomically, politically, whatever, every person is fallen because of sin. Even if we don't say it explicitly and atheistically out loud, you know, there is no God. We all show it implicitly in our manner of living. In our fallen state, we live as if there is no God. We're like the Israelites. In the book of Judges, we do what's right in our own eyes. And whether it's through atheism or agnosticism or through false religion, the psalmist's words ring true for why people live in this manner. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. Men live in sin because there is no fear of God before their eyes. But ultimately, it's God's eyes that matter. And this leads us to our second point. So what does God, or sorry, how does God see us? So let's look at Psalm 14 again. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it very quickly. This is verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The psalmist is telling us that God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, looks upon the children of men and he can see everything and everyone. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. This is chapter 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He can see our deeds and he can see that we are corrupt at the core. In God's eyes, we're laid bare. The prophet Jeremiah writes this, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me. Nor is there iniquity concealed from my eyes. Jeremiah 16, 17. Yeah, so I know I, we've been jumping around the Bible a lot in these short few minutes. But what I want us to see is what, what is at the heart of Matthew 5, 8, right? Let's read it again. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. So what we're learning throughout the scriptures is that God sees the hearts of men. And this is what Jeremiah tells us about our hearts in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? In our natural state, we don't have pure hearts. We have depraved hearts. In our fallen state, we're dead in sin. And this is why we need new hearts. But praise God that in His grace and in His mercy... He set his love upon an undeserving people. In his grace and mercy, God sent his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, into the world to live as a man. As we heard Pastor Mike preach earlier this morning, Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit 
and born of the Virgin Mary. So Jesus had a physical body. He had a physical birth. And this is Jesus. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He's God with us. That's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus is the image of the invisible God that we cannot see with our eyes. And he lived a physical life on earth. So listen to what the apostle, the apostle says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, like Adam, Jesus lived under the law. But unlike Adam, he did not transgress it. Jesus was tempted. But, unlike Adam, he never sinned against God. In his life, Jesus never suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Jesus always lived in the fear of the Lord. Jesus had no stain of iniquity because he was a God-man, conceived supernaturally. He wasn't from Adam's generation. Jesus always did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and Jesus loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind. Jesus, Jesus had a pure heart. He always lived in perfect obedience to the Father's will. He was even obedient to death even death on the cross. And when Jesus went to the cross, he died the death of a sinner. He died the death of a transgressor. The the death that those with impure hearts deserve. But for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. In his living, Jesus earned the righteousness that is required for right standing with God. And in the, in the presence of a holy God, you need to be perfectly holy, right? So, his substitutionary death on the cross, in his substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus accomplished full and complete atonement for all of the sins, for all of the people who would ever place their trust in Him. His blood purchased the redemption of all the sinners who would repent from their sins and ever look to Him in faith. And when He was laid in the tomb, He rose again on the third day, and in His resurrection, Jesus victoriously showed that death had no hold over Him. I mean, how could it? The wages of sin is death, but... But Christ, our spotless lamb, there was no sin in his account. So, the grave couldn't hold him. And now that, he, now that he's been raised from the dead, he forever lives to reconcile sinners to God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that gives hope to the hopeless, those with impure hearts. And so now, when God looks upon a sinner who clings to Christ by faith, he doesn't see the stain of sin. He doesn't see the record of wrongdoing or transgression that that sinner has committed in his life. That sinner is justified in the sight of the Lord because of what Christ has accomplished for him in his life, death, and resurrection. Though 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 1.18. And this group of particular people, these undeserving sinners, whom the Lord has purchased for his own possession, this ingathering of such people is the church, right? And Paul describes what Christ has done for the church in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. These sinners whom the Lord has purchased for himself, he has made them saints set apart for His glory. And God works in them to both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And God applies this work in our lives by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, whom He promised to send. Jesus is Himself the fulfillment of all the promises of God, and Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to teach us and remind us of all that He has taught in His Word. John 14, 26. And moreover, God promised to not only justify the ungodly, but to sanctify them. Let's look at uh, Ezekiel for this promise. Ezekiel 36, 26. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it very quickly. Ezekiel proclaims this. I will give you a new heart. I'll give you, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Through the Holy Spirit, God gives us new hearts. Hearts that are markedly different from the heart that Jeremiah described in man's fallen state. God gives believers new hearts to not only trust him for justification, but to also obey him in sanctification. And this leads to my third and final point. So how will we see God? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who are united to Christ by faith have new hearts. And that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. And with new hearts, with circumcised hearts, or as Jesus puts it in Matthew 5, 8, those with pure hearts, those with such hearts will see God. Those who are repenting of their sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, for the salvation of their souls, how will they see God? Well, as Paul described it in Galatians 4, 4 uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, which we read earlier, the redeemed have been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters of the King. And they will see God. They will see God as their Father. So listen to what Paul writes in the next verses of the same chapter. So, remember, this was uh, earlier in the sermon, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, uh, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son... Uh, 
And if a son, then an heir through God. That's up to verse 7. So, Christian, if you are united to Christ by faith, you're a child of God. I mean, what, what a wondrous and glorious truth that is, right? Uh, that, that's, I think we were, we were talking about earlier, you know, in our prayers, we were once alienated. And we've been brought near to God by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And not just near, we're now His children. So we've been given new hearts to, as His children to trust and obey. So listen, listen to how the Apostle John describes the same truth that Paul was writing of earlier. This is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. It makes me think about um, the sands of time are sinking. Like We're going to see uh, our king without a veil. We're going to see him as he is. And, and, and because we hope in that, in that solid, rock-solid hope of Jesus being there when we see him in glory, we're, we're purifying ourselves uh, because of the new hearts he's given us. So, so let's, let's look at that again. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God, Matthew 5, 8. So how will we see God? Well, this beatitude at, at its core is about identity. If your identity is in Christ, then if you're, if you're united to Him by faith, you have a new heart. And you'll see Him as He is, your good King, who is coming again to bring you home. However, if your identity is not in Christ... Um, if it's an Adam, you'll see him as your judge. And he's coming again to execute judgment against all sin and ungodliness. There's a coming day when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, you will either bow the knee in grace or under wrath. And friend, if you're here today and you're not sure about how you will see God on this great day, I urge you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Today is the day of salvation. So, to conclude, I just wanted to uh, briefly discuss the Pilgrim's Progress. I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. But... In the beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress, we find this character, his name is Christian, and he lives in the city of destruction, and he, he realizes he has a great burden on his back because of the book that he's read, which tells him, which tells him of the reality of his, the, his state of affairs, um, and that he needs to be saved. And so he listens to a guy named Evangelist, he flees the city, and there is a point in the story where he has this burden on his back, and he's carrying it the whole time, but there's a point in the story when he comes to the cross, right? He comes to the cross, and, and when he sees the cross, the, it says in the text that the burden, he started running, 
and then the burden was loosened from his back and it fell down the hill and then there's like there was a, a sepulcher like a tomb at the bottom of the hill and that burden went straight down into the tomb and it was closed and it and the whole rest of the trip the whole rest of the journey he didn't have that burden so Christian saw two two things and in two different ways at two different times he saw his sin he saw his sin when when he read the word the the word of the word of god exposes us for for um for who we really are we we can't hide you know behind any any facade before god so he was exposed in that way when he saw the word but then at later on in the story when he saw the cross that is when his burden was relieved he it was removed from him and it was never to be found again i mean as far as the east is from the west that's that's what it was like for christian and so um when we look at this text matthew 5 8 blessed are those who are pure in heart for they will see god i pray that we would see god um through the new hearts he's given us see that we have no righteousness of our own but that christ is entirely our righteousness he's given us his his own life and he's brought us into this new family the church and we're all going together to uh to go to him on that great day where we'll see him and we will see him if we if we persevere so let's go ahead and pray